There are some words and some phrases that get stuck in our throat. Um, If you Google the phrase, words that get stuck in your throat, what is the first thing you come up with, do you think? What? There it is. Apologizing. Anything to do with apologizing. That's the first one that gets stuck in our throat. Admitting error shortly after that. Crediting other people with, with something. That, that's hard, too. I, I kind of had that. We, we don't like to give other people credit, even when they deserve it. It's kind of a... It, it's just like, yeah, but what about me? I had this, I had this thing. And so there are a lot of ideas and things that, that get stuck in our throat. I don't know what that's there. There we go. We'll hold off on that. <clears throat> um... We do some of those things, don't we? Um, I like to soften uh, things like that a little bit. When, I, when those phrases come up, I, I soften them just a little. So, um, I, I, I made a mistake. Right? You ever do that? I made a mistake. I, I, was, I was mistaken. Right? I don't want to say I was wrong or I'm sorry. I, I was mistaken. Uh, I'd rather be misunderstood. I mean, if you, can't, you can't turn on... A, uh, TV or anything, and see an athlete uh, apologizing without apologizing. It's like, well, you know, I'm sorry if I offended anyone. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're offended by me. I'm sorry that you need to apologize. And that's kind of how it turns out. We we kind of want to diminish uh, the 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 thing about us, the implication on us. I can credit. Someone, if it doesn't suggest that my idea might have been inferior, that's a, that's a little bit difficult. My grandpa was telling me a story that uh, he was a machinist, um, <clears throat> and uh, he was one of several people that uh, that was commissioned. Um, he he worked for American La France, which made fire engines, and uh, he was one of several people that the military commissioned to make a military vehicle. And, uh, and he's telling me this story, and um, they, they decided to have competing groups. And he made a he made a a, a vehicle. He designed a vehicle that was um, he said it was like used in Turkey like once, but uh, it had uh, I don't know what I'm talking about. For I know we have military people in here, but the driver sat in the middle, and it had two 45 calibers. Is that a big gun? Uh, mounted on each side and one in the back and it was designed to turn on that uh he lost he lost uh the competition the winner uh some of you drive his the winner's vehicle uh the the winner of this kind of competition in in personnel uh designed the hum the hummer the humvee uh so so he has, he's telling me the story and it's like yeah he he wanted to have one he wanted that credit and, and so there's that that yeah, I didn't quite get there. And we do that. We, we want to be the winner. We, and so that sticks in our throat. And we have a lot of things like that. We want to not diminish ourselves when we credit other people. We have that. We've been analyzing the roles of Christ, and some are fairly benign. Some are easy to say, um, he's a friend. Well, I like saying that. Jesus is a friend. Um, Passover lamb. That's kind of innocent when you think of a lamb. Most, however, have implications. Some, some just straight out, when you say it, they have, there's no getting around it. Right? Um, but some of them have these implications that they would stick in our throat if we actually made the connection. We don't always make the connection. Right? Like we talked, we began the first month of the year, we talked about 
Christ as the Logos. What does that mean? Or the Word. Right? That, if we made the implications that are, are, are implied in that, right, and we, we accepted that, then it would be a little bit more difficult. Right? Um, because if I admit Christ as the Logos, that, that, that's the concept that's saying He's absolutely correct. There's, there's no way around it. He is the Word. He is the absolute truth. And Absolute truth is kind of a concept that we don't really like all the time. If I accept Him as Savior, I like Him as Savior. But that means that I have flaws that I need to be saved from. That's, that's the imp- implication. Christ as Savior is nice, but wait a minute. Oh, what, what did I just do? What's the fine print there? Well, some are difficult, as I say, to accept if we think about it. And we make those. But some are straight out. There's no... There's no deduction that needs to be made. We talked about some of these. Um, John chapter 13. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, and this is the, this is here the, the night before, uh, that this is the night he's going to be arrested. This is the last, last supper. He said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? So he's just washed their feet. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do, just as I have done to you. For truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We are going to be actually combining a couple of titles, titles of Lord and Master. Uh, they're really, uh, there's a lot of words that are translated as both. And sometimes the same word is translated as both. And there's a, we're not going to get into that. We want to talk about Christ as Master. Well, <clears throat> what is a Master? That sounds kind of stupid to, que- to ask. And yes, there is. Sometimes there are. I, I was taught that I had one teacher said, well, there's no such thing as a stupid question. And then I had another teacher said, no, there's definitely such things as stupid questions. So, so um, this looks at first like a stupid question. What is a master? We have a strange relationship with this word. In a religious sense, we say it without any hesitation. It is a multifaceted word without, with lots of connotations. Um, for example... A master. You can use the word master. Right? He's a master builder. Does some pretty cool things. He's a master. When you use that, uh, master electrician, master craftsman, master this, master. We use the word all the time, and and have no problem. So we have a acceptable relationship with this word. However, master if we go back 150 years, has a completely different connotation. We don't like that connotation. Some of you might be cringing right now. Like, ah. I want you to back up and think of what we just read. I want you to think of the connotation as we talk about a master, what this meant back then. And the fact is that the way Christ uses the word master 
is a lot less like this and a lot more like this. Look at the reaction that Peter has if we had backed up and read that whole long text when Christ said, I I need to wash your feet. And he wraps the towel around himself and he starts getting down to wash Peter's feet. Peter gets offended. Peter gets so offended at what Jesus is doing, he actually rebukes Christ. Why does he rebuke Christ? Because masters don't do a slave's work. That is beneath you, Jesus. Jesus said, if you don't let me do it, you don't have any connection to me. Because, guess what, down the road, you're going to be doing the same thing. You are going to serve people that right now you think are beneath you. Right now, you might think that you are above these people. You're going to serve them, Peter. Those Gentiles that you think are down there, you're going to serve them. And so I'm going to serve you right now. Washing of feet was the lowest job in the house. It was reserved for the lowest level slave. If you own slaves. If you didn't, I guess you just did it yourself when you went to visit a friend. But that was a common job in a home. And if you own slaves, that was the, the lowest on the totem pole. It's humiliating to wash feet. And so we have this strange connection with this word, and I want you to notice that the apostles kind of didn't get completely the word master. Jesus came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, why are you washing my feet? I want you to notice that. You will never wash my feet. He rebukes him. Never will this happen, Jesus. Think about it. He's been with Jesus for how many years? Three years? And speaks of this because of what he thought. He thought he's being respectful to Christ. That's the real, the real thing. He thought he's being respectful. Christ, you are not this slow to do this for me. But he understands masters don't serve. Masters don't serve. Jesus says, come again. <laughs> You're going to have to rethink that because now masters serve. So, so the Apostle shows this, and there's a couple of events in Luke that show that they have this, this, uh, this problem. Like we have this, this dichotomy of, of how we look at the word master. They did the same thing. Look at this. In, in Luke chapter 8, verse 22, he says, One day he got into a boat with his disciples. He said to them, Let us go across the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, they fell asleep. A windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water. They were in danger. They woke him and said, Master, Master! We are perishing. He awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? They were afraid. They were amazed. And they said to one another, Who is this? That he even commands 
the winds and the waves, the water, and they obey Him. Now think about what they've just said. They come to Him expecting. They're out of options. These brave seafaring men are out of options. They're not being able to keep up bailing the water, which certainly they were trying to do. They've done everything they can. They now realize we are in over our heads, figuratively and literally. Let us go wake up the Master. He'll have a solution. So they come to him, Master, Master. He provides the solution. And they go, wow, we didn't think he could do that. Like, you just came to him asking for help. He did it. And then you're like, I didn't know he could do that. Then why did you wake him up? It's completely logical. See, they, they kind of recognize he's master, master, but wow, he can command the winds and the waves. Yes. He has absolute authority. That's what masters do. They have absolute authority. And, and you came to him and said, we, we're sure that you have enough authority to help us. But they have this problem between the full acceptance of that authority. I don't know what they were expecting him to do. But they didn't quite accept that he had that much authority. We know you're the master, but... Luke chapter 9, the very next chapter. Ooh, what happened there? Did I press that again? Okay. Let's go with my notes. Luke chapter 9, verse 29. Luke 9, let's start in verse 28. It says, It came to pass about eight days after these things. He took Peter, John, and James, went on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. His robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah. They appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. When they were fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And so as it happened, they were leaving him that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles. Let's, let's put that in. Some might say tents. This is like a shrine. Let us make three shrines. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Peter did that a lot, not knowing what he said. At this point, God feels the need to speak out of heaven, as he does frequently, to correct people when they're out of line. God does not just have absolute dominion, but He requires absolute loyalty. He is the Master. And here Peter's like, well, this Master, this is a great thing that's just happened. Master, he's just said Master. Let's, let's honor you, Moses and Elijah. Like, no, he's the Master. Master means he's in a place by himself. When Jesus is glorified, the others weren't glorified like that. 
He's above. And that subtlety eluded Peter. As they attempt to recognize Jesus' greatness, they, they actually dishonor Him. By trying to give Him honor, they, they, they end up dishonoring. But Much like Peter did uh, washing his feet, by trying to honor Jesus, no, you won't do it. He actually dishonors Christ by, by contradicting His mission. We have to understand what it is that a master is because it's not a stupid question. Peter's, the other apostles, had problems with what it really means to be a master. So we want to know the master. It's not just good to know about the master. And so, so the obvious when you talk about a master, as we've looked at this word so far, we understand it obviously is connected to the concept of service. That's unavoidable. Even Peter made that connection. Your relationship with a person who would be called master is different from most relationships you would have, obviously. The job is service. We've talked about service. But relationships, and this relationship, doesn't just govern what we do. I don't want to talk about what we do. I want to talk about how we do it. Luke chapter 17, verse 7, he says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeps sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come at once and sit at the table. Won't he instead say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly. They've just come in from working in the field. Go get changed. Get cleaned up a little bit. Get my supper ready. Serve me while I eat and drink. Afterwards, you will eat and drink. This is a statement that I've always had an issue with. As I've read this and and as as I have this preconceived idea of who Christ is. Because he's obviously talking about himself in his relationship with the apostles, look at what he says. Does he thank the servant? Because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We have this idea, I don't know where it comes from, but we have this picture of nice Jesus, that, that Jesus runs around <coughs> thanking everybody for doing what they're supposed to be doing. We have people in a managerial position, a number of you. Do you thank everybody every time they do something that they're supposed to do? No. It's your job. We expect attaboys from God if we are going to serve. And God says, I ain't giving you attaboys every time you do what you're supposed to. Oh, look at me. I was such a nice boy. I did what I was supposed to. Yeah, you were supposed to. You want a standing ovation for that? No. I was so good I showed up to work. 
unconditional service. Service even if Christ says, you're going to have to wait to sit down at the table. There will be a time. There will be a time when you sit down at the table. He could be a cruel master. He's not a cruel master. But we have to understand the position of a servant and a master. He is a master. We don't like that phrase. We don't like that word once we start thinking about the implications of it. Christ is a master. With allegiance. When I say that phrase, service with allegiance, does that come to your mind? Allegiance. How many of you have pledged allegiance to the flag this year? Anybody? I have. went to our kids' school. They pledge allegiance. We do that without even thinking. Some of you don't. There's all sorts of different perspectives on, on patriotism, and we're not here to discuss that. Some people are very patriotic. Some people, eh. I know people that are very not patriotic, intentionally. I saw a thing this, this, uh, this year, I was looking at it, and uh, they had an interview with some Amish people, and they asked them if they knew who John F. Kennedy was. Mm. They are very unpatriotic, out of their religious sense of duty. But we have an idea of what it means to pledge allegiance to a flag. That's a, a concept all of us were probably raised with. On our property, we have a flag right over there. Now, maybe not that particular one you didn't pledge allegiance to, but you pledged allegiance to a flag. I, I hesitate to do this because I, this might be... I, I fear that this will be what people are left with as, as we conclude our sermon. But it is displayed overnight with no light on it. Do we have any military people in here? That is against the military code. It was out in the rain this week, which is against the military code. It has never been put at half-mast for official holidays or deaths of dignitaries, which is against the military code. When we pledged allegiance to it, I thought about putting a flag up at my house, but I know this. I mean, no one's going to come to my house and put me in prison for it. But I understand that there's implications if you do that. But we easily pledge allegiance to it with our mouth. But to go through all the necessary things that would be required to properly pledge allegiance to it, that takes some time. That takes some effort and energy. Like, who's going to... I don't want this because I recognize that I work here and I'm probably going to be... Oh, Andrew, uh, since you're there... Could you say, take down our flag because it's going to rain today? That's not what I want to leave here with. Because Ray will be the one. I already have to check the mail for him, which I don't do regularly. Let's make the connection. How easily have we pledged allegiance to Christ with our mouths? And do we do the things that actual allegiance requires? Things that take up my time. Things that are incredibly inconvenient. Oh, man. 
time, energy, effort, have I actually pledged allegiance to a master? Or have they been words which rolled off my lips so easily without making that connection? So we're going to close with just a couple of questions, a couple of challenges. You can, you don't need to get there. Really more of a challenge, not a question. Close the gaps. Just close the gap between the understanding, the concept, and, and the, the follow-through in your own life, wherever that is, because we all have them. That is not something I stand up here as a person who figured it out, so now I can tell you about that. Gaps open up between our intention and our execution. The causes may be proper motivation or priorities. Bad experiences in your past. There's all sorts of things that, that, that open up. So close the gaps. And I want to conclude with this one. Don't fear. Fear is your most limiting emotion. If you don't do something, largely it's because of a fear you have. As we talk about what it is to have a master, it may seem that the stakes are too high. Well, they are high. But they are not too high. I want you to take you back to that one statement. The, the, the hard statement that Christ makes. The, the, the one that challenges the way we think about Christ. When he says, hey, I'm, I'm not here to thank you for everything you do. I'm going to sit down first. And he did. I'm going to be served now. You do get a chance to sit down later. To sit down. In fact, Christ says, you will sit down and I will serve you. He says that. I will serve you. You have a master who will keep all the attaboys. And you will sit down at his table with him for an eternity. So do not fear. The stakes are not too high. They are high. You have a master. But our challenge is to leave here today and to really let it sink in what we have pledged allegiance to.